Hello, friends, family, and family friends. Tom Schroeder stepped in and took us on a trip through psychedelic time, starting with Albert Hoffman and the synthesis of LSD, to his ever-evolving relationship with Rick Doblin, the founder of the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, to using MDMA psychotherapy to cure PTSD from sexual abuse and combat in the war. We talked about one study he covered in his book Acid Test with Nicholas Faxton, who you might remember from episode 21, and the way psychopharmacology can be a great new tool to fix problems in our society that we keep wrapping up with the proverbial duct tape. Although, as great and life-changing psychedelics can be, there are still great hurdles and obstacles standing in the way of them. Tom informs us of the struggle therapists are fighting against, a battle of science and psychedelic experiences versus the take-a-pill, twice a day, paid with your life as a loyal customer to Big Pharma. We appreciate you. You are fine. Fine is good. Please come again. Ah, now, be free. Don't be afraid. Learn. Be healthy and open-minded. You can find more about Tom at TomShorter.com, and his book Acid Test is available on Amazon. So sit back, relax, grab that Afghan off the back of the couch, and turn it up to 11. Ladies and gentlemen, gentlewomen and lads, Tom Shorter. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, we are here today with Tom Schroeder, uh, award-winning author, a longtime editor for the Washington Post and the Miami Herald. Over his long career, Tom has edited multiple Pulitzer Prize-winning pieces and New York Times best-selling works. In his most recent book, Acid Test, tells the compelling story of the decades-long journey that psychedelic medicines have made via the individuals most involved. It was also a major inspiration for this podcast. Welcome to the Tink Tink Club, Tom Schroeder. Hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> Not a problem. I'm, I'm Matt Landis. I'm Chris Conti. And I'm Tim King. And uh, we'll get right to it. Um, in the first chapter of Acid Test, you begin with the story of Albert Hoffman and his accidental synthesis of LSD. Uh, while it's a familiar story to some, it is certainly one that is worth repeating. Do you think you can give us, uh, our listeners, a brief history of this discovery, provide a little background for our discussion today? Yeah, well, I, I think this, I came across something that I don't think anybody else had ever pointed out, which is that um, uh, Hoffman was Swiss, and he talks about growing up uh, in the Swiss countryside, mm -hmm. and he said he used to love going for walks in the woods. And at one point when he was, you know, maybe in his early teens, suddenly the, the woods just took on this absolutely magical uh, aspect to them. And he, he felt like um, suddenly he was sort of privy to all the beauty of the universe and his, his sort of perception just expanded just totally spontaneously. And he was transfixed, and it was it was like a spontaneous mystical experience. And after that, he decided that communicating what he had experienced was really important to him, and that the only way he could do that, he figured, was by being an artist or a poet. So he spent some time sort of trying to be 
to express himself in that way and then decided it was hopeless, that he just didn't have it in him. And so he kind of went the other way and he became a chemist, a, a scientist dealing with materials in sort of poorly ventilated laboratories of the you know, early 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it was, seemed like the polar opposite thing. And, and what I think nobody ever commented on was the extreme and sort of providential irony of the fact that although he was frustrated in his attempts to express this mystical experience he had in, in words or images as an artist, he rather became a chemist and he, he somehow stumbled on a drug that actually provided those experiences to people. It gave people the access to those kind of mystical experience through the ingestion of a very tiny amount of, of a compound that he discovered. So I, I just that always impressed me as being amazing. Well, anyway, what happened was that um, they were working with compounds of something called ergo, which was a it was a, a fungus in in rye that you know during the Middle Ages had killed thousands of people because you know if if uh, grain supplies got low, they weren't real careful about eating tainted grain. Mm. And, and for generations, people would just die these horrible deaths, and they didn't even know what it was. And then they kindly, they eventually discovered, hey, it's this tainted rye that we have. It's a fungus on the rye. And, um, and so, uh, so he was working with this, but, but uh, they had, the folk um, uh, healers had discovered that this was good for for stopping the bleeding after childbirth and in, in, in given in in sort of proper amounts um, that it actually con- it, it actually speeded childbirth and then after childbirth it shut down the uh, hemorrhaging so midwives used this for generations so when when in the early 20th century when uh, pharmaceutical houses began to intentionally try to discover uh, things that were good for medicine they often investigated these things that had been used as folk medicine to see if they could, you know, find out what the active ingredient was and and maybe it would serve some other uses. So um, Sandoz, the, com- the company that he went to work for, had, had discovered principle in the rye fungus, the ergo um, principle that, that was cr- had the physical effect had the medical effect, and he was working with compounds of that. So he was just sort of randomly combining the uh, active ingredient in this with other um, things that were known to be sort of physiologically active. And one of them um, was diethylamide, which was a um, an ammonia derivative. And this happened to be the um, 25th, uh, compound that he was experimenting with. And so um, the active ingredient ergo was called lysergic acid. And acid in German begins with an S, the word for acid. So that was LS and diethylamide was the D. And the 25 was indicated that this was the 25th compound he was working with. So in his lab notes, he notated it as LSD 25. And um, and so when he was when he was synthesizing this, um, he suddenly became 
dizzy. And then he began to sort of start to see these weird colors and and he became to he couldn't really walk anymore so he, he kind of had to have his lab tech take him home <laughs> and uh he lay down on the couch and saw these like sort of weird colors play out in front of his in front of his eyes and he came back the next day thinking well that was a very strange experience obviously it was a psychoactive substance and he discounted the fact that it was the LSD because he was using that in such he he was protected he had protected himself from it and if he had absorbed any of it it would have been in such minute quantities it would have been a fraction of any amount that in the sort of most active uh psychoactive drugs the most potent psychoactive drugs it was like a hundredth of the active dose of any drug he knew of so he figured it couldn't have been that so he started like sniffing the formaldehyde that he'd been using in the preparation mm -hmm. and, and that didn't do it. Mm -hmm. And so after eliminating all this stuff, he realized, well, wait a second, it had to be the LSD. And so then what he decided to do, which a lot of scientists did in those days, especially was to try it on himself. And he didn't tell his boss, only his lab assistant knew he was doing this. And what they did was they started out with a really tiny, tiny fraction of the dose that they felt would have any effect because they didn't want to kill themselves. So they, what they did was they took a tiny, tiny amount, and then they slowly increased that amount until they began to feel an effect. Well, in this case, he took a really tiny amount just as a first dose, figuring he wasn't going to feel anything, and it totally knocked him on his ass <laughs> to the point where the um the lab assistant had to escort him home again and and the thing was this was in the middle of world war ii in europe and they didn't have a car that they could use so they both had to ride bicycles back to his place and and he didn't realize this fully but he was tripping his brains out <laughs> and and this must have been the most and he said he got out on that bicycle and he felt like he, he wasn't moving at all, <laughs> that he was pedaling and pedaling but not going anywhere. But eventually they made it to his house, and he was wondering if maybe he poisoned himself, um, you know, because he never expected it to have this powerful effect in the small dose he'd given. And so he just asked uh, the neighbor to bring some milk, and the neighbor, because milk is kind of this nonspecific antidote to poisons, and he figured maybe that would help. And uh, and then the neighbor comes in with the milk, and he thinks she's a witch. Um, and he had this, just this, and he he was very fearful because you know he really thought he he might have you know poisoned himself. And later he realized that the nature of his that first experience, a very fearful experience, was very um, indicative of the fact that when you that when you ingested this substance. The set and setting of the uh, of the experience of your situation really guides what the experience is. And set meaning your mindset and what you were expecting. And in his case, he was thinking maybe he'd poison himself. So he had this paranoid mindset. And the setting, you know, was was his his house, which was good, except that it was uncontrolled. And when these strangers were coming in, he was thinking they were witches or whatever. So. It really was kind of nightmarish, although when a doctor looked at him, there, there was nothing physically wrong with him. I mean, except 
his heartbeat was and blood pressure were a little bit elevated, but nothing dangerous. And otherwise, he seemed completely fine, except that his pupils were dilated. <laughs> and um, and so slowly, you know, they sent for his wife, and his wife shows up. And, you know, he was thinking all along how stupid he had been to have done this and how he's going to make his wife a widow and all that. But by the time his wife got there, the effects were clearly lessening, and he was beginning to get less and less afraid. And by the next morning, he woke up, and he felt really wonderful. Mm. And the world just seemed like it was newly made, and and the beauty of the world was really, you know, it reminded him of when he was... Um, when he was that teenager who experienced this sort of sudden moment of clarity where he just felt the beauty of the world so keenly. And, and so he go and he, and he goes to work and he says, I think I've discovered something really important here. <laughs> and his bosses didn't believe him because of the small amounts he'd taken. So they insisted on trying it himself. And he, and, and he had to laugh when his boss, who was saying, "Oh no, there's no way that it would have that effect," came back and said, <laughs> and then told him, "Wow, yeah, right." So, so then he he came to understand, you know, to really think that this actually could provide that kind of experience he had remembered from being a teenager, and that he had wanted to express so badly, but had been unable to. Um, and Sandoz began sending the LSD out to labs and universities around the world. And so psychiatrists and uh, psychopharmacologists and academics of various kinds began to experiment with it, both uh, with themselves and with volunteers. And, um, and people began to have these remarkable experiences. And there was a student... Uh, at a medical college in Bern who was um, named Stan Groff. And he he observed, you know, at first he was like babysitting the people that were in these studies. Right. And he was so impressed with what he observed, he decided he wanted to do it. But there was a rule that said no students who were involved with the program could also be subject in these. Hmm. So he waited until he graduated and then he instantly volunteered to be a subject. And he had this transcendent experience where he felt like he was like, you know, uh, launched into the heart of the universe and like witnessing the Big Bang. And, you know, had, he, he just had this life-changing mystical experience as a result and decided that uh, he was going to devote his career to this. And he began using it. Um, you know, the, at the time, Freudian psychoanalysis was, you know, was the rage and, and everybody was doing it. But there were certain people, and Groff was among them, who had been getting disillusioned because people could be in, in, in uh, psychoanalysis for years, even decades, and never get any better. Um, so it just was seeming kind of futile to him. And then when he began using... Um, techniques from psychoanalysis in combination with LSD, they were he was getting these incredibly dramatic results. People who had, you know, chronic and and very uh, intransigent um, psychiatric issues uh, were getting better in one session. 
right. you know, it was it was like it was it was almost like magic. And so he began to, you know, to study this and to do this. I mean, he ended up maybe, you know, doing this with uh, several thousand patients over time, you know, many thousands of doses. And uh, and people around the world were using it. And for a period of, you know, from the early 1950s until the mid to late 1960s, LSD and other psychedelic drugs it became the most studied psychoactive compounds in history. And they were being used clinically among tens of thousands of patients. And they were being studied and, you know, they, and everybody was noting how remarkably successful they were from conditions ranging from alcoholism to drug addiction to autism to, um, uh, traumatic neurosis, which we would these days call post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm. Um, and even in situations such as, uh, you know, marital problems or things like that. And people were finding enormous, um, rates of success that were exceeding absolutely anything they'd ever experienced. And so everybody was taking it for granted that this was absolutely the future of psychiatry. Um, but at the same time, the CIA was experimenting with these drugs and they were using them in a really irresponsible and, and kind of horrible way. They were dosing people unsuspectingly and, and sometimes they were dosing them and then subjecting them to extreme stress, like as such as an, as enhanced interrogation. It was a kind of using it as a form of torture. The infamous brothel. Yes, and they they actually owned a brothel. The CIA funded a brothel in San Francisco, and the Johns would come in and they'd drop LSD in their drinks without telling them. And there were people who had psychotic breaks. There were reports of suicides. Um, but also there were people who took them and had fabulous experiences, and, and the CIA was also funding these very loosely audited um, uh, clinical trials um, in places like Menlo Park, where they were hiring people to come and take the LSD, including uh, a man named Ken Kesey. And, and Kesey was famously was taking the LSD and was having this transcendent experience. And these guys in white coats were coming and like asking him all these stupid questions. And he was like looking at them and saying, you know, seeing basically how blind they were to reality. Uh, and, and you know how lost they were in their little game when he was sort of at the, on this higher plane, and he went out to uh, you know, and he basically popularized. You know, he famously wrote um, "One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest," inspired by his LSD trips, and in fact wrote the first few pages under the influence of LSD. And, and they're amazing right. writing. <laughs> Uh, and and then he began to popularize it in in the with the merry pranksters. Right. And then they had the big acid tests where the Grateful Dead would play, and they'd get all these people to come and serve them uh, LSD and, and Kool Aid. And and this sort of so it basically and and another person that the CIA funded acid got to was a guy named Stanley Owsley, oh, yes, um, who was a grandson of a senator, and he thought. This substance was the key to world peace and that what he ought to do is go to the Berkeley Library and figure out how to make it himself. 
which he did in a period of three weeks with the help of his girlfriend. That's right. Wow. And they and they made thousands and thousands of doses, which <laughs> sort of began to flood all over the uh, university and the Haight Ashbury communities in the Bay Area, and and then it began, you know, to spread to campuses around the country, and this, of course, was at a time of of social unrest where, you know, people were getting drafted to go fight in a war that uh, had very little justification. And and so there was this huge generational rift and the beginnings of a cultural rift as well. And so the powers that be were much more threatened by what was happening with LSD, by the nature of it. You know, the, the way that people who took LSD began to say things like that they saw reality and it wasn't the reality that the establishment was trying to sell you. Uh, and so... This was very threatening to the status quo. And the reaction was very over the top and hysterical. And so what they did was they, they sort of scheduled these emergency hearings and there were all these headlines sort of that sensationalized. I mean, there were real dangers of unrestricted use of this drug and it did cause some problems. But these problems were, were sort of magnified and exaggerated to ridiculous amounts. Mm -hmm. And so what they did was they did this immediate kind of ban where they put all psychedelics on the most restricted um, category along with drugs like heroin. Is that the Controlled Substance Act in 1970? Yes, yes. And, and so that completely outlawed um, you know, use of it, but... Of course, that continued. Illegal use of the thing, it didn't really do much. In fact, it even flourished. But what it did do was it completely and utterly shut down all scientific research. And in fact, any academic or any scientist or any psychiatrist who even expressed an interest in this, and remember, this was something that was the wave. I mean, it was the wave of the future. It was the most studied drug in history. And suddenly, bam, it was closed in one... Um, researcher who was active at that time said to me it was it was it was as if um psychedelic drugs had been undiscovered yeah. and wow. so for 30 years basically all re all legitimate research halted to the point where people even forgot that there was this 15 to 20 year period of of incredibly active research and a very successful and incredibly promising clinical use mm. of these drugs. And, and, and it was like people didn't even remember that that had ever existed or even know about it. Right. Could you imagine where we'd be now? Nobody even mentioned psychedelics in medical school curriculums. Mm. Um, yes. And if they hadn't shut it down, imagine where we'd be now. That's an excellent point. And so anyway, what I mean, I've gone on long enough here, but what acid test is about is this small group of people who refused to to sort of give up on this, refused to give up on making LSD and psychedelic research a, le a legitimate area and something that went forward within the mainstream rather than underground. And people thought they were nuts and it and it seemed like they were nuts because the it, the uphill battle of trying to get this done 
was so i mean it's unbelievable if you you know when you if you look, read acid test you'll see how unbelievably frustrating this was and how many obstacles were laid down in front of them and it just seems so impossible but um but a handful of people and and the book focuses on a couple in particular and and, and one above all else uh, a man named Rick Doblin right who in the early 70s was just a student at a at a sort of liberal arts uh, experimental college in Sarasota, Florida called New College. Hmm. Um, and he began to take acid because everybody on campus was taking acid. And, and he sort of decided this was going to reshape his personality and, and, and sort of it provided the key to help him be the person that he was hoping that he could become mm -hmm. and that he real and he, that he believed that this could help everybody um, sort of realize their higher selves, especially when he started reading the books that Stan Groff had written about his experience with LSD psychotherapy. He, he decided he was going to be a psychotherapist just at the time where all research was being shut down. So that was the sort of frustration that drove him over the next 30 years mm -hmm. to teach himself the science, to teach himself the politics, and to persist where any sane person, any completely sane person, would have stopped long before he, and he never gave up. Mm -hmm. And around about 2000, they actually started to develop the science that made it impossible for the FDA to keep saying no. And and we've kind of progressed from that point to a point now where there are clinical trials using a whole range of psychedelics for a whole range of, um, of psychotherapeutic issues. Uh, and again, they're, they're looking incredibly successful. Only this time around, they're using the higher standards of, of modern clinical research, uh, you know, the, the randomized, double blind, all that stuff that, you know, that is required of modern medical research. And they're still proving to be remarkably effective. Uh, and, you know, they're, they're really closing in on a period where they go into the, what's called phase three research, which is where they get, you know, uh, hundreds of subjects rather than dozens. Right. And the end point of this is, would be that they would force the rescheduling of psychedelics away from the, uh, from the, the, the highest level of prohibition, which says, which is only for drugs with no medical use. Schedule one. Schedule one, yeah. And, uh, and, and schedule one drugs cannot have medical use. Mm. And uh, and then, you know, once it gets rescheduled, then there can be a situation where the therapy becomes uh, prescribed by psychiatrists. Right. I mean, it's not that they're not looking for a situation in which people go to the CVS and pick up their prescription of, you know, psilocybin or LSD or MDMA but uh, the rather where what would be prescribed would be therapy at a clinic, you know, kind of on the model of methadone. Right, right. One of the, the main subject of acid test, uh, Nicholas Blackston, has actually been on the podcast with us before. Uh, mm -hmm. We had the opportunity to interview him. 
after um, Horizons Conference last year. Well, Nick Nick is a remarkable guy, yeah. and he joined the Marines right out of high school mm-hmm. and, of course, got sent right off to Iraq and, you know, and was in, in both Fallujah and, and Ramadi, which uh, were, you know, some of the worst fighting of the Iraq war with the most American casualties. Mm-hmm. And he both saw and experienced and suffered and witnessed and participated in horrible things from, you know, watching one of his closest friends sort of bleed out from an injury right in front of him uh, while they were being pinned down by an enemy assault in their Humvee uh, to where he had to blast away at, at like a, a couple of 12 year old kids with his 50 caliber machine gun because they, because some, uh, you know, insurgents had handed these kids AK-47s and told them to go shoot the Americans. So the kids came out with their AK-47s shooting at the Humvee, and, you know, he had really no choice but to blow them away with his fifty caliber machine gun. Right. Shooter be shot. Yeah. And, yet, and yet he felt incredibly guilty about it, of course, because... He did, he thought he was there to fight professional jihadists, not not kids who sort of happened to be showing off for their cousins or uncles or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and like a car would come around the corner, and you know, as he says, there's a a thing in in the Marine that they tell these machine gunners, and it's tires, grill, kill, which means that if a car's coming at you and with unknown intent. First, you shoot out the tires, and then you shoot out the engine and the grill of the car. And then, if it keeps coming at you, then you shoot at the driver. Well, when you're on a 50 caliber machine gun, which is shooting, you know, like something like 150 rounds a, a minute or something, it's, you know, it's very difficult to do those in stages. And so it's, it's basically just like bland tires, grill, kill all at once. Right, that's right. And uh, so, but, you know, he'd never know whether that guy was had a bomb in the trunk and was going to blow them up or whether he just made a bad turn at a bad time. So all this stuff, um, you know, and, and, he, and he got blown up himself. He, he, his Humvee went over a, uh, an IED right. and, you know, and, and he had a moment of thinking that he was dead. You know, but he actually he got injured and he got burned and got shrapnel, um, and then you know he get they they go he get he goes to the medic and they they pull a couple a little bit of shrapnel out of his uh, out of his butt and they slap some bandages on the burns and then and his knee is messed up because it hit the ground when he jumped off the Humvee and they sort of wrap his knee and then he goes right back in the Humvee and goes back out that very night. And then when he comes home, um, he's completely unable to cope with, uh, you know, being back in, in, in the U.S. and back in sort of a peace environment. Um, he's constantly having these nightmares. Uh, he's having hallucinations. You know, when something triggers a memory, suddenly he'll be thinking that somebody's like, shooting a uh, a RPG at Adam when he's driving in the car, 
you know, to the point where he actually sees it coming at him and cracking the window and the window shattering. Um, so he, he was really, and, and he had these uncontrollable rages and he couldn't concentrate. He was trying to go to school and he couldn't concentrate. And it was so bad that, you know, he actually sat with his service revolver, sat on the edge of his bed with his service revolver, revolver, you know, with the steel cold against his temple, imagining the bullet sort of tearing through his brain and ripping out all that mess inside so that he could have some peace. And he, he felt that, and none of the VA, any, you know, going to the VA didn't help. They gave him a bunch of drugs that only made him feel worse, basically. And, you know, they were anything's from, you know, some antipsychotic drugs to tranquilizers um, to uh, SSRI inhibitors. And they all had just made him feel like he was pushing everything down, which was the problem to begin with. And he really felt like he couldn't survive. And then he saw notice that a psychiatrist named Michael Mithofer mm. was having a clinical trial using MDMA to treat PTSD among veterans with combat-related persistent and chronic and treatment-resistant disease, right. which was him exactly. And he happened to live 20 minutes from Charleston. So, you know, he immediately called them up and, and he got in the clinical trial and, you know, the, basically the climax of, of the book is this very dramatic um, treatment that he underwent in the MDMA sessions. Right. And, uh, and it allowed him to have this distance from his fears um, you know, part of the what happens with PTSD is that there that that, that traumatic um, those traumatic experiences get jammed down into kind of the lower part of the brain, mm. and um, they never get processed by the sort of higher parts, which whose job it is to give memories their perspective and you know and sort of compare them to all other experiences and to sort of rationalize them. And, and to make use of them. Instead, there was this sort of like blaring car alarm down in the basement because the traumatic memory was too hot at the, at the time it happened to be sent up for processing. So the brain had to concentrate on survival at that time. So it's kind of created this little dungeon down there for the memory right. and, and wouldn't let anything near it. And so whenever... That, and that's what happened with the triggers. Whenever anything sort of came close to getting to that original experience, you know, all the symptoms of PTSD would react hmm. to try to to try to sort of protect those evil memories. And uh, and so what MDMA seemed to do was it it, it sort of and and fMRI studies have sort of borne it out is it kind of quieted the part of the brain that was responsible for the fear response. And and that sort of let him approach these memories, and then it, it, it activated the part of the brain that did the kind of um, insights and, and processing. So not only were these was he able to get close to these memories and bring them up without going into this whole panic reaction that, you know, that, created all his problems but 
he he also was able to see them in a in a in a new way. And 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 people who underwent this kind of therapy said, you know, one person, you know, their quote was something like, you know, I knew I was stuck down in this battlefield and I, I couldn't get out of it. But when I when the MDMA took effect, I kind of rose above the battle, and and even though you know I could see I was still down there in the battlefield, I could for the first time see that there were actually paths out of the out of it. And so you know after the therapy, they still had to travel those paths. I mean it wasn't like they were instantly done with it, but they now they had they knew they had seen that there was a way out and they had a belief that there was a way out and that gave them the ability to do the work that was necessary to sort of take those paths and get out and get off the battlefield. Can you describe what um, MDMA um, psychotherapy actually is? It's not, I think people think you just go and you take MDMA, but there's a lot more to it. There's, you know, talking and laying down and, and voice. Oh yeah, no, it's, it's, in fact, you know, unsupervised use of any psychedelic is very risky because, A, um, you know, you could have a medical, a rare medical reaction to it uh, that, you know, like, you know, the, some some cardiovascular uh, or hypothermic, hyperthermic incident um, that would require medical attention. Um which is rare, but it's not impossible. But more likely, though, is a anxiety reaction that without somebody there who is experienced and knowledgeable and expert in dealing with this to help you feel reassured and safe and talk you down. Uh, and the other thing that can happen, of course, is unsupervised. Uh, you're not in the best state for like deciding whether it's safe to go drive somewhere, for instance. Uh, And so, you know, to have somebody to both keep you safe and to reassure you is really essential. Somebody who's trained and knows what they're doing and won't make matters worse. Um, But so the way it works and, you know, there are different methodologies, but primarily what happens is um, somebody comes in and, the therapist gets to know them first and they'll have several sessions just to talk about what the issues are and for a, to develop a kind of basic level of, of confidence and trust between uh, patient and therapist. And they, they've, they always do this with one male and one female therapist, both to avoid any dangers of uh, sexually abusive situation and also because the, the mother and father principles seem to uh, sort of play a role in allowing people to open up. If they choose between a mother figure and a father figure for different parts of what they're dealing with, uh, that just seems to be helpful. So that's just been the, the way that they've done it, is they've had one male and one female therapist. And after these introductory sessions where they kind of get to know each other and they kind of explore what the issues are, they'll take the drug and and they'll be, you know, it's conducted in a very comfortable living room type setting. You know, they make pains to make it a sort of uh, attractive, positive vibe type of environment. And they'll they'll take the... uh, 
the first dose of the MDMA, and then they'll they'll invite them to put on earphones with music and and a blinder, so or eye shades, so that they can kind of go inside. And they're told, you know, the theory is is that the medicine will kind of bring up what's important to be brought up in the order that it's important that it be brought up. So they're, they're, you know, they're told to trust the medicine and to kind of talk to the therapist if they feel they need to, or if they want to explore something. Um, and that, and the therapists say, you know, from the beginning and, you know, if we don't hear from you for a while, we might check in and see how you're doing and see if there's anything you want to talk about. And uh, so a lot of the session involves watching somebody on a couch mm. with the eye shades on and the earphones on. And, you know, the only thing that, it, you know, I've seen hours and hours of video tapes of these sessions. Mm -hmm. and, and during these long periods, which can last 30, 45 minutes, where nobody's saying anything, um, the eyes, you can see the rapid eye movements beneath the eyelids sometimes because, you know, the... The brain is in a kind of almost uh, deep state where the rapid eye movements are going and, and there's a lot of visualization going on. Um, but then somebody will come out and say, you know, I just realized that, like, for instance, in Nick's case, he started visualizing himself. He had done some um, he had done some kind of meditation on his own when he was trying to deal with his symptoms on his own. And the, you know, the drugs from the VA were only making things worse. So he tried doing meditation. So he had this visualization that he did and he started doing it on, under the MDMA. Only the difference was that it became almost like he wasn't guiding it consciously anymore. That he was just in this visualization. And he saw himself going down these steps into this basement dungeon-like place. And then there was this door that he knew there was something really he feared was real, that he was behind that door. And he didn't want to open it, but he knew that he had to if he wanted to sort of try to get better. And he opened it up, and there in the dungeon he sees this monster, and then he realizes it's like a demon, and then he realizes that the demon's wearing a marine uniform. And then he realizes that the dream demon has his face, and that's him in that prison cell. And then he realizes that he's the one who put him there. Mm. And and he begins to feel compassion for this monster, and thinking, you know, this I I, I really he really I really didn't deserve to put him in this prison. Um, you know, I, I I can't keep him locked up like that. And so he opens the door, and then this, he sort of gives this demon a hug, and they kind of melt into one another. And basically, he forgave this demon, him, for all the things that he did in the war, realizing that, you know, he had to do that. He had to do that to protect them and to, and to save his life and to protect his, his buddies' lives. And that he was, and he saw that he was in this situation that he, he couldn't, control and that he was just trying to survive and so he basically forgave himself for everything that he did and that was the real beginning of a dramatic turnaround in his condition and by the end of this therapy um and you know this the the 
the drug would normally sort of phase out over a period of about four hours, and and and, and but they sometimes gave another half dose about two hours in to kind of stretch it out a little bit. Right. But you know, at the end of six hours. He's had a tremendous number of insights. He's had memories. He's remembered things that he hadn't remembered before. He's kind of faced things and, and dealt with things. And at the end, so it seemed, from his perspective, it seemed like way more than five or six hours. But at the end of five or six hours, you, you know, he stays in that. And, and during that time, there would only be brief periods where he'd be having conversation with a therapist. But some of those conversations were extremely intense. Um, for instance, he, he shows uh, Michael Midhoff, or the therapist, these, these uh, tattoos on his, on his body and where they tattoo their dog tags onto their skin and and um, they called them meat tags and Michael asked him well why do you do that and he says well it's because you know if you get your head blown off or your arms and legs blown off so that you know they'll be able to look at the torso and know who you are mm-hmm. and uh, and then he he sort of goes into this other MDMA reverie and he starts having this incredible reliving of one of his most horrific combat incidents. Mm-hmm. And he, and he says, you know, I don't know why I was, I'm, I was thinking, you know, such violent things when I was feeling so peaceful. And Michael said, well, you just showed me these, you know, these tags you called meat tags on your own body, you know, and you think that that, that kind of, thing isn't damaging to a person to think of themselves as meat as like a, he called himself like basically a robot who was just programmed to, you know, to kill. And he says that, you know, that dehumanizing stuff and, and you need to be able to forgive yourself for that. And so, you know, there were things like that going on. And, and, and by the end of this, he was talking about how, you know, his whole perspective had changed. And so he spent the night there then his fiance came the next morning to pick him up, and they had a, a little sort of post-session discussion, first with Nick, and then they bring his fiance in, and they all talked about, you know, that this is the beginning of a process, and that sometimes, you know, this it's not like everything's going to be instantly better, but, you know, that in fact, that this allows him to begin dealing with some very painful stuff, so that some of the hardest work is is yet to come and and that she shouldn't you know she should be anticipating that um and then he goes home and and he began to suddenly you know like he never used to like to eat vegetables or anything and suddenly he started craving them and it, he said it wasn't like he felt like oh I should be eating vegetables he really might he's, it was like his body he felt his body craving them and craving a healthier way of eating and that it really was a complete change of perspective where suddenly he cared about himself because all this time he, he basically hated himself and he hadn't cared about it. So he found himself putting on a seatbelt when he was driving for the first time. And this all just happened naturally because there was this basic shift. And, and, that's, and it was that kind of shift that's the really the healing part and that what makes this really stand out is, is that it's very hard to change people and to change their behavior. 
But these experience, and it's not the drug that's doing it, it's the experience that the drug brings on that is really bringing on the healing. So, um, you know, that, so afterwards, you know, they have this, in order to get into these clinical trials, they give you this standard test for PTSD that's not given by the, by, uh, the experimental psychiatrist. It's given by an independent party so that, you know, so that that part will be objective. So it won't be influenced by wishful thinking. So he, te- Nick tested with severe PTSD. And after three sessions, he had almost non-existent symptoms and he was way below the threshold for even being having a diagnosis of PTSD. Wow. So essentially he was cured. Right. And and about 80% of the people in these trials have been um, coming out without rating PTSD. Right. And, and these are all people who had severe and chronic and treatment-resistant PTSD that other treatments hadn't helped. So that, that you know, those results have been pretty consistent through a variety of, of different trials mm. and um, you know and, and they're really remarkable and you know scientists have to say well it's still a small sample you know they right. they're like 24 people in this particular study yeah. and that you know until you get hundreds you can't really say it's effective but this is a unique situation because remember there were 15 to 20 years of incredible results you know almost half a century ago Mm -hmm. that were just completely forgotten about so you know as a non-scientist i can say that this stuff really does does work remarkably well to not take away from uh, ptsd but i feel like ptsd does get a lot of publicity for mdma i've heard you mentioned um dr midoffer's work with sexual abuse as well i know there's a story you know about Oh, yeah. I mean, the the first trial he did was mostly women victims of um, sexual abuse and rape. And in fact, uh, women who are raped develop PTSD at a higher incidence than even people who have experienced combat. So, I mean, in in, in in a sense, the surest way to get PTSD is to get raped. Mm-hmm. And um, and and these women had and I and I did a magazine story, and this is also part of acid test. It, it turned into a chapter. But the first thing I wrote about about this therapy was in a magazine story in the Washington Post magazine in, in 2007, and and it was about these women who had been either raped or terribly abused. And as a result, had, you know, life crippling, uh, PTSD. And, uh, there was this one woman who, whose, uh, mother had taken up with a man who just basically tortured her sexually, um, over a long period of time and abused her in all sorts of horrible ways. And, um, and so she, under MDMA, she, uh, had this sort of, you know, she began to get really angry with Michael because she felt like he was forcing her to, you know, sort of go back to these memories. Well, 
I was listening to the tape of this, and he was he was being incredibly gentle, but she was perceiving it as that he was pushing her and forcing her because really she was doing it. And uh, and suddenly she just got her whole body got rigid, and then she just started this incredible kind of violent thrashing about, and it was almost like the, the poison was leaving her body. And then after it was over, she she suddenly said. Oh my God, my mother traded my childhood for sex because she remembered that her mother had once confided into her, to her that this brutal stepfather that she had was great in bed. And, and then, and so she realized, she suddenly realized, oh my God, my mother traded my childhood for sex. And, and, you know, and, and, uh, this was really the beginning of her being able to, to sort of get past this. Right, yeah. Well, you know, as, as a uh, respected journalist, do you ever feel like you have become a sort of psychedelic spokesperson? Like, uh, in other words, do you feel like it was important for you to put your name on something like this to kind of um, bring these studies back into the mainstream and make them more accessible for people? Well, certainly whatever part I could play in that, I, I, I would welcome because the science is so solid. And, and, and the people who are active in this um, are really careful, and they're really careful about their science because they know that, that they're under tremendous scrutiny and that people would just do, you know, would love to, dis there are still people who would love to discredit them. Um, right. and, and so they're really meticulous scientists and the, and the science that the body of science that they are building with their work is really sort of unstoppable because um, regardless of the politics, we're at least in a society where really impeccable science will prevail. And, you know, it, it's not going as quickly as it would if it were some unknown substance that was having these kind of results. Mm -hmm without the cultural baggage that psychedelics have. But it will prevail. And But the, the frustrating thing to me is that, you know, there's the huge need, and not just PTSD, although half a million uh, service people are coming back from a decade of war in Iraq and Afghanistan, with, with a, by the Pentagon's own estimate, with PTSD. Mm. Uh, 22 service people a day are, are veterans. 22 veterans a day commit suicide. It's awful. Many of them because of, you know, uh, because they can't deal with their post-traumatic stress. Right. Um, not all, but many. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and, and yet, and plus, uh, the, for between disability payments, and medical care that we owe veterans with, with PTSD. Over the next 30 years, a independent um, Harvard analyst has estimated that taxpayers will be paying for those things to the tune of like a trillion dollars. It's just, and, and yet the Pentagon has not contributed dime to this very expensive process of researching a drug to get it to the point of FDA approval for prescription use. 
Um, and in fact, when I went on Diane Reem's show uh, after the book came out, after Acid Tested came out in September, um, they asked if I could get somebody from the Pentagon to come. And I had some contacts, and my contact contacted a general at the Pentagon, and, I, and he forwarded me the email that this general sent to him, which totally blew my mind because it said something to the effect that, oh, no, discussing this is much too dangerous for folks in uniform. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, discussing this is dangerous <laughs> and, and leaving all these people untreated, uh, you know, for the next 30 years is not. So, uh, you know, I just wish that and, and, and you know, the, the people who are working with them say, well, they're beginning to work with us. You know, they're not funding it, but they really are cautious because, you know, drug abuse is such a big problem in the military. So they're really scared of a seeming of seeming to endorse something that's known as a drug of abuse, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, that's just that's just a lame excuse when when all that's going on here is some very serious science. That's right. That's right. And hopefully that will happen as they get involved in a sort of collaborative way with some of these studies, which is happening, even though they're not funding it. Um, and when they sort of start to feel ownership of this incredible success that the treatments are having, then maybe funding will follow. Right. Do you feel that um, a shift might happen if they did the same sort of uh, therapy with um, like that, that Nicholas and the other um, other people in the psychotherapy um, studies, if they had them uh, take the pills that they were originally given from the VA and sat down and kind of watched the videos themselves of watching kind of nothing really happening, you know, they take the pills and nothing happens. Well, I think, I think that they're and actually some of these training you know, in, they've gotten approval to train therapists, you know, for when the phase three starts, they're going to need a lot more therapists to do this. And so they've gotten approval to allow the therapists in training to do MDMA sessions themselves. And this could include some people from the VA, some psychiatrists from the VA. So, I think in the not too distant future, we are going to get a situation where, you know, people in the establishment system begin to have personal experiences with this. Well, <clears throat> unfortunately, we're out of time. Uh, just want to say we are, we, you are an inspiration for this podcast. Um, your work, your bravery, you know, coming out of sort of the psychedelic closet has certainly had an impact on the world in a positive way. Uh, where can people find more information about you? I mean, we could talk to you forever, but yeah. you, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I have, I have a website, just taught my name, Tom Schroeder.com T O M S H R O D E R.com. And of course, uh, you know, you, you can Google acid test and you can find the book, uh, on Amazon and other places. Uh, and uh, so, you know, and, and you can also contact me through my website. So I'm always glad to hear from folks. Great. Anything, anything you're currently working on right now that you can... Uh... I am working on another book, but it's a much more sort of personal uh, thing. It's about the, the impact that your 
um, ancestors have on your life. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Well, again, Tom, thanks for uh, joining us. Yeah. We, uh, we, it means a lot to us. Yeah. It it's was a, really a pleasure, guys. Yeah, hopefully, we can listening. talk to you again soon. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Tom. I just want to say a big thank you to all of our listeners and supporters and to Tom Schroeder for taking the time to talk to us. Uh, you can find more information about Tom's work at his website, tomschroeder.com, and I highly suggest picking up your own copy of Acid Test. Go to maps.org for updated information about research into psychedelics, and while you're there, I urge you to check out the Zendo Project, which focuses on psychedelic harm reduction at festivals and events worldwide. You can find more information at our website, tinktinkclub.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at tinktinkclub. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes. Send us an email. Tell us what you think. And for now, we'll tink you later. And as always, remember to love each other. I'm sitting in the railway station Got a ticket for my destination One night stands my suitcase and guitar in hand And every stop is neatly planned For a poet and a one-man band Homeward bound I wish I was Homeward bound Home where my thoughts escaping Home where my music's playing Home where my love lies waiting silently for Every day is an endless stream of cigarettes and magazines And mm. each town looks the same to me, the movies and the factories And every stranger's face I see reminds me that I long to be Homeward bound, I wish I was Escaping home When my music's playing home When my love lies waiting Silently for me Tonight I'll sing my songs again I'll play the game And pretend But all my words come back to me In shades of mediocrity Like emptiness and harmony I need someone to comfort me Music's playing home, but my love lies waiting silent.